Okay, so we're talking about, just in case anyone is listening, we're talking about out there in recording world. Sorry, I forgot to turn it on. And I'm just talking about the um, three ways of looking at the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And right now we're talking about remembering to be, it's so funny, it says record, record, but it doesn't work. Remembering to be, to, to bring mindfulness to aspects of our process that we don't like, that are tripping us up. The five hindrances, they do that. Grasping and aversion, sloth and torpor or restlessness in particular, maybe doubt for some people. And to, to realize that those are on the fourth, those are part of the fourth foundation. And it's really an area to cultivate mindfulness. It's, it's really powerful. And you can also think that way about, if in a way you can look at the five and the first three are kind of about difficulty stuff. You know, there's the hindrances, the five skandhas, and the sense stores are all about things that trip us up. You know, the skandhas trip us up because we identify with stuff and we think it's me, and that's the whole morass that we get into. And the sense stores are difficult because we get totally distracted by sense stores, especially if they're pleasant, and we want more of them. So those are all things that tend to get us off the rails, to distract us, to kind of keep us away from simply being present and aware. So in all those cases, in this kind of way, to think of them as objects of mindfulness because they're in the fourth foundation. And the Buddha said, this is what the four foundations are about, is stuff to be mindful of. So it's really useful. It's really useful. The skandhas, I found cultivating mindfulness of the skandhas when they come up and seeing how we're crystallizing or coagulating a sense of self around that can be really powerful. You know, it's it's body, vedanas, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness are the five. And any any of those, you can kind of see how, oh, look at that, look what I'm creating. Look how I'm stiffening the sense of self around it. So just to bring mindfulness when, when is a lot of me, me and my happening? You know, when you find yourself, like if someone's angry at you and you find yourself kind of puffing up a little bit, or if someone says, I think the really fun one is if someone compliments you a lot and you find yourself puffing up, <laughs> it's a really good time to be mindful right there and, and like puff that little, that little bubble a little bit, see, see through it rather than being bubbleized away by it, even though it feels really nice for a minute or two. So, um, I find this a very helpful first approach, first way of thinking of this fourth foundation. See, I'm not reading. I'm just checking to see if I missed anything. And the second way is it's kind of a corollary that I think is really useful. Is that... A lot of people, when they talk about their practice, they sort of say, oh, it's just this muddle. You know, it's all this stuff coming and going, and I just feel like I'm lost in some kind of zoo out there of all of my thoughts and feelings and everything flying around. We do this, this uh, we do this practice called noting, you know, where, where in a real simple way, like if you're thinking, you can have this little voice that says thinking, 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 and just name it and not get lost in it. You can also do a version of that 
with the fourth foundation where if something comes up and it's kind of grabbed, you can kind of say, oh, yeah, that's one of the hindrances. Or like, oh, yeah, that's one of the skandhas. And it's really helpful to kind of just to be able to sort of place it, you know, place it where it where it is. What's the predominant quality of that thing that just seems like a tangle? But to be able to place it in the in those in those five lists can actually be a really effective tool. I mean, it's not just a you know a silly trite thing to do. It can actually be really helpful to just help ground yourself and then be mindful of it. And I, 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 that's where the Scott has really come in handy because a lot of times, you know, when we're lost in some kind of la-la land, it's usually around selfing, often around selfing. And to be able to, to see some way in which we're in our mental formations in particular, which is sort of like thinking, planning, all that stuff. But it's just to be able to name it and, and, and place it in the fourth foundation can be really a useful tool. Or another way of, is, is you can almost like say, it's almost not, you could make the case that there's nothing that arises in your hearts and minds that doesn't fit in the four foundations. It's covered. There's no anomalies out there that don't actually fit in there. You could, could sort of assign it a place. And it can make life much less, you know, if, if any of us are in a space where it just seems like I'm kind of lost, it can really help just unlost us to be able to kind of place what's happening, kind of name it in a way in terms of the fourth foundation. So it's worth checking. Or even just something like a lot of noise, you know, six cent stores. Sound, sound, sound. To just be able to name it's really helpful. Ajahn Amaro calls this the five ways of slicing the pie, five lenses on our experience. By the way, it's a great, if any of you are interested, there's a, uh, I think I mentioned this before, Ajahn DeSabo turned me on to this, that I can send you a link. Um, someone, uh, that, so Ajahn Amaro, during a winter retreat, um, Amaravati did a series of talks in which he read on Elias, brilliant but intense book on the Satipatthana. He'd read sections of it and then comment on the sections he just read. So it's, and, and plus quoting the suttas. So he's like tapping the Buddha, tapping his own amazingness and tapping on Elias. It's really incredible. And it's this whole series of talks that you can listen to there on some kind of iPhone format, which I don't have, but somehow I'm able to get to it. So this is very good. So the third aspect of the fourth foundation is, is real subtle, and it has to do with the ways in which this fourth foundation turns us toward Nibbana. And I'll humbly admit that this is a lot of what I'm picking up from Manalayo and from Ajahn Amaro, and so it's been, it's been this is something I didn't actually get some of this stuff in the past, so I'm, I'm I'm on a learning curve. But you know, when you look at the Buddha's list, they're often they start from the simpler and they move towards nibbana. It happens over and over again with his lists or the way he structures things. He's always heading you in that direction, and so 
why not? Of course, it would be that. Like, like in the uh, 16 steps of Anapanasati, it goes, starts in a very physical way, goes through states of mind, and then the last tetrad is all about emptiness and moves into relinquishment. It just walks you right through into awakening. And this is a different version of that in terms of the fourth foundation. And this is pretty amazing because you can start to see that the, that the, um, within the five, the first three, the uh, hindrances and skandhas and sense stories, it leads into the last two, which are the seven factors of awakening and the four noble truths. And so there's a real sequence there. And holding those, the seven factors of awakening and the four noble truths within the context of the entire four foundations, it, it's, it's, it holds it differently. It's pretty amazing how it, it's different. I don't know if you just sort of take them in a vacuum where it seems like, okay, fine, four noble truths, I got it. It's bigger than that. And as some of you know, I'm sure you all do, the four noble truths are the truth of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness of a life built on clinging. The reason why is that's unsatisfactory is because of it's driven by clinging. There's the possibility of freedom from that and the Eightfold Path is how to do it. So it's just this beautiful little, succinct little recipe or, or prescription of what's wrong with the problem, how come that it can be solved, and here's the prescription, kind of like that, that doctor metaphor often used. Analayo says, to awaken is to fully understand the Four Noble Truths as they really are, this being the final exercise among the contemplations of Dhammas. And this fourth foundation, it emphasizes investigation of these factors, like bringing our mindfulness to them, but doing it from a sense of really clearly comprehending them, really seeing what's there. That's a funny word, sampajana. Mindfulness and clear comprehension go together. And to really bring mindfulness to something and then look into, see it. You start to see it. So it's the other, it's the, it's because mindfulness is, you know, it's an exercise in awareness, but then you bring clear, clear comprehension to it. It's, it's a seeing process. They completely work together. But that's how this starts to, starts to happen. And in this fourth, it, 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 the Buddha is actually emphasizing the impermanence of things is built right into the way he frames them. It's pretty powerful. He says in one of the sections, talking about a monastic or a bhikkhu or a practitioner, the Buddha says, he also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor and how the arisen, arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. Now here he's talking about the mindfulness factor of the seven factors of awakening. But there's a way in which the Buddha is encouraging development of that. It doesn't show up in the other parts of the four foundations where he's really encouraging development. It's like a subtle little shift in wording that I humbly admit I didn't notice until Analayo pointed it out. And I was like, oh, I'll be darned. That is different. So it's really built in here to carry this to awakening. This is really like a real movement in that direction.
And then the Buddha says, and how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths? This is the section right at the end where he talks about the Four Noble Truths. And it's, it is, that's it, one paragraph. It says, here a bhikkhu understands as it actually is, this is suffering. He understands as it actually is, this is the origin of suffering. He understands as it actually is, this is a cessation of suffering. He understands as it actually is, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And that's so powerful because, you know, often we say, if you really understood the four foundations, you'd be awakened right now, poof, in the story, you can go home, you know, because that's it. So he's saying to understand as it actually is, it's a real like, like a encouragement to go deeper, you know, just to keep, to keep going because there's something to be seen on a totally profound transformational level baked right into this and, and it's being pointed out in in this uh, sutta in a, in a very powerful and I can't say unique because I don't know I don't know the Pali canon that well but unusual anyway way I mean I, I can't remember anything like that but that doesn't mean there's a lot of there's a lot of sutta to remember um but you probably know he's, you know, in the very first sermon is where he introduced the Four Noble Truths, the very first turning of the wheel. And here in this, this one, it's like brought up again, but in this real powerful way, just sort of saying, you can imagine him talking to a bunch of bhikkhus saying, know it as it really is. You know, it's kind of urgency to see it. Analayo writes, and we're almost done. In contrast to the previous Satipatthanas, the first three, contemplation of dhammas is particularly particularly concerned with recognizing the conditioned nature of the phenomena under observation. In fact, the main instruction for most of the contemplations of dhammas directly mentions conditionality, while in the previous Satipatthanas, this happens only in the refrain. So to decode that a little bit, when he's talking about conditionality, he's talking about cause and effect, dependent arising, that everything arises due to a prior cause, which is also in the 12 links of dependent origination. But there's a real kind of core Buddhist understanding that nothing stands inherently of itself. It's all part of a chain of cause and effect. That's what the Buddha said over and over. Everything's impermanent. That's what he said at the time of his death. So everything's changing in cause and effect, which means that there's nothing inherently there there because it all has a prior cause. It's Everything's in motion. In this reference to the refrain, that's what I was saying, there's 13, during the Satipatthana Sutta, there's 13 repeated descriptions of how this works. And in every case, they talk about seeing the arising and passing of everything, whether it's a position of your arm or your breath or... You know, the states of mind, they arise and they pass. And from that, you see they're impermanent and that leads to not clinging. So that's what the refrain keeps saying. But in this fourth Satipatthana, it's sort of driving more into the whole sense of the conditioned nature of everything and and sort of just stretching us up. It's, it's like a lot of times I think the Buddha's like, I get this sense, because I've been around some teachers who, you can tell, like Joseph Goldstein's like that, and some Tibetan teachers, you can tell they see something, they see it, and they're trying to, like, 
they see it and they're trying to describe it to, you know, yokels, half baked per- persons who don't see it yet. So they're doing everything they can to kind of tease it out, to kind of open up your mind, to help you see it in this real simple way. And I can see the Buddha doing that here, saying, really, everything's cause and effect. Get it, get it, get it. But you can't really see that. You see that in practice. I mean, you kind of get the idea. But then you see that in practice, you know. You see things, surprising dissident just over time. It's like, okay, where is the concreteness? Ain't found it yet. And, and, and the more you see that, the freer it gets. Because whatever it is you might get hung up on, it's not permanent. Or any sense of self you might get hung up on, it's not really there, ultimately. So I think this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things that's just worth, worth chewing over. Joseph, Joseph's book, you know, Anulai was incredibly, insanely brilliant. <laughs> and he's German, and he's incredibly precise, and he's written, I cannot believe how many books he's written. He's like, there's 12 books now that he's got out. It's just unreal. He's, he's, he's up at the Berry Center in, you know, next to IMS in Massachusetts. I, I mean, I assume he's still there, just practicing and cranking out books, which are a mixture of his own seeing. And I've, I've been in a few retreats of his. He's actually very funny. He's, I mean, I was surprised. I thought he'd be grim, but he's actually kind of almost ludicrously funny sometimes. Uh, and he's, but he's also completely on it. Um, and then Joseph's book is, you know, Joseph's so amazing. And it's, it's sort of warmer. And he tells more stories. He's got a little more human. He taps on Elio's book pretty heavily. So they're pretty integrated anyway. But if this was, you know, work for you. And then this, this is a, it, this is an amazing book. It was first published, when was it? A long time ago. 1965 was the first American. So this was an early German monastic. So really the first Western person who tried to articulate what the Satipatthana Sutta is. And it's still good. I mean, it's still good. I, I find it a little hard to understand in a funny sort of way, but it's worth, you know, definitely worth chewing over. Oh, the seven factors? Yep, they are seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And I, we, we did do a series about those, and sort of, I don't know how to say it, kind of just floating on their own, it's sort of hard to get how they work in a way. I, I, in this context, they come alive in a new way. Uh, I'll throw that out in a half-baked way, but I think they are amazing. And right, and as some of you know, because we talked about it in the very beginning, the other amazing thing about the Satipatthana Sutta is the promise that the Buddha makes at the end, which is so cool, and it comes right after the thing about the Four Noble Truths. And he says, Bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. Means not coming back in the next lifetime to this plane. And then he keeps going down, not only for seven years, seven months, seven days. He kind of keeps, you know, so if you could be completely mindful for seven days, I guess, you'd get there. 
but it's just wonderful. I love that promise. I don't quite know what to make of it, but I, at the same time, I kind of, yeah, because it works. And of course, back at the time of the Buddha, you know, there's all these, I don't know how the karma works, but all these stories of 500 monastics who all woke up at once. Or the, the first five ascetics, they woke up at the second, the second turning of the wheel, the second sutta, I think, if I remember right. So it could happen any moment, folks, for any of y'all. So, uh, yeah, that's all I got.